0: Hey there. If you would like ad-free and early versions of these episodes, as well as bonus episodes, movie club episodes, and lots more, head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. Six came over a few weeks ago to tape an episode. We taped a lovely episode, and you'll be hearing that soon. But that is not this episode. This episode was taped the day before I went on my fateful London trip and before the world shut down last year. Her story is so incredible and inspiring that it deserves a multi-part series. So that's what we'll be hearing over the next week or so. You'll hear the rest of this discussion, and then you'll hear our recent discussion. So get ready for a riveting story. On this episode, I am pleased to present a success story of self-love and rebuilding, of glamour, talent, perseverance, and overcoming addiction. Please join me in giving a warm and wet, whimsically volatile welcome to my guest,
1: Six. What's up, everyone? <laughs> this
0: is so cool. This is a lot of fun, and I'm glad we uh, met at Pride last year. Uh, I think you were with Ray Latre. I was. JoJo. Uh, Eureka.
1: DJ Pasta Body. There we go.
0: That's yeah. the other name. That's yeah. the other name. Yeah, and uh, Anthony I, Torres. That's right. That's right. It was so crowded in the main body of Tom Tom that when I finally made my way to the area of the bathroom, it was like where we were in our holding. Yeah. Which, <laughs> and it was it's right. Your holding area, yeah. which was so funny because, you know, when you're finally like, oh my god, thank God, I don't feel like crushed by people because for me, it takes a minute to sort of acclimate to a very, very packed bar. Same, and I sort of had that like shell shocked look on my face, and suddenly I saw a bunch of folks I know, and then yeah. we met. So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, sorry
1: for a second, it's I'm just not like, here. Yeah, it's almost like meeting people for the first time again, even <laughs> yeah, though you know who is. they are. You're like, yeah, it I, is. Uh, oh, you finally get to collect your thoughts, and you realize, <laughs> oh, I'm amongst people. There are people here that I know. And it was so jammed.
0: And then like Lisa Vanderpump walked in. And then a which whole crush of people. Which was a
1: debacle.
0: It was. Do you see the girls getting hit in the head with it a camera? It was a
1: debacle. I mean, the camera crew just literally just bulldozed through. Yeah. A, I was like, I Wait, think I was. You got hit. You got I, hit. Yeah, I was like in 10-inch heels. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, you got hit on their way out. Yeah. I, yeah. Had, to, I had to check the cameraman.
0: Yeah, which I, I'm glad you did. And
1: Valissa was right there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's the Valissa. first day I met Valissa. The little, the little camel. Yeah. I call I call, I, 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 I call, I call her the camel because uh, one one time, she hopped into the back of the car after we were uh, working at the Abbey, and she hocked a Lukey. <laughs> and I'm not one of those people. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm old school. I'm 43 years old, and no, I'm 43 uh, as well. So, work. Cheers, 76. For me, you know, when a when a when a lady spits, it's it's, <laughs> it's disturbing just to me. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I've come so far in in how I think about things and how I view things and how I categorize things. But Velissa was one of those girls that. Uh, uh, you know, a tiny little bit of spit got on me and I was in drag and I was like, oh, "Okay, you, like how, how non-ladylike are you? <laughs> and I've, I've teased her about it ever since. And um, I, I know she gets annoyed when I say it. So I have to just say it one last time. Oh, that, well, that's good. It's now for posterity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, and she's a lot of fun. She's a, you know, she, she's a blast. I mean, Jojo um, and her are so amazing. Yeah. And, and, and just to see life through their eyes, yeah. So it's such an incredible experience to because be able to, they're
0: from a different uh, and they're so
1: young. Yeah, that's the they thing. They don't know about things, you sure, know, yeah. and I, it's like I get to I get to share a little bit of my life experience with people of that age and people of all ages. I mean, I think that's what I'm learning now is that really all I'm here for is just to share my experience and share what I've been through and sure. try to help others get through their experience.
0: And I think that's one of the things that makes it easier to accept, say, uh, negative things that have happened in our past or traumatic events when you're searching in the middle of dealing or processing with all that stuff, sometimes you have this moment of why and why me and things Absolutely. like that, right? But then I, I think, um, especially because of doing the podcast and talking about various issues and then getting feedback from people saying about how it affects them and
1: everything. Part of you can go, oh wait, there's like a reason for this stuff. Yeah, you know what, the funny thing is, is and, and what I'm learning now and what I've been learning in the past couple years is that, you know, I, I constantly lived in the future. Oh, sure. I was constantly living in how was it all going to manifest? How uh-huh. was it all going to work itself out? Sure. And life, you know, you see those bumper stickers that roll by, you see those things that hit you and you're like, oh, that doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really apply to me. Yeah. But that one that really stands out for me when we're talking about this is that life can't really be understood looking forward. No, that's very true. It can only be understood right. looking back. And and, then, and and when and when you do look
0: back, it's bizarre how linear Things look when they don't seem it at all which in
1: the time is the absolute reason of why i started doing drag but now let me just i forgot to grab my iced tea so i'll be right back (laughs) absolutely i'll sit here and hum (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny that you say you edit it because i was listening to it literally i fell asleep to it last night Uh i'm a preparer I love prepping myself for what it sounds like, what sure. it looks like, what i i never imagined that it was going to look like this. I mean, this is so, oh, I mean, this is rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So yeah. yeah,
0: describe it for the listening audience, if you'd like. It's just crazy. It's kind of like, it's very, it's very sexual thank you very much right well, that's i'm, uh, I'm, I'm naked s- now actually <laughs> that's right suddenly you didn't even you weren't even trying to be and then where are my shoes <laughs> that's the magic of the first 10-15 minutes of the show you it's know, amazing you, yeah we talk about heavy wow. things and then in the meantime clothes are lifted crazy it off of
1: that's the first time that's ever happened to me sober <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what i like to provide at the show yeah. i love it hey thank you for going above and above and beyond my my pleasure yeah yeah so i i do edit but very it's uh it's imperceptible where it's edited and stuff. It's usually to, uh, Tighten things up and uh, and all that. But I love tight things. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I like uh, encouraging and uh, and fostering tight things. So you said that's um, one of the reasons you started doing drag. Yeah,
1: went, it, uh, go ahead. The the reason why I started doing drag, I you know I was fifteen year old runaway. And I met three drag queens when I was young, really, really young. And where'd you run away from and where did you land? I ran away from Columbus, Ohio, Worthington to be specific, Uh and uh, ran away to the short north, which is in Columbus. It's like the... uh, uh, collegey, you know, smoke fest kind of uh, okay. little town within a city. Yeah. And, um, I met these three drag Queens and they changed my life. Wow. They brought me in off the street. I was, um, you know, I was a foster kid. I grew up in so many different foster homes, whether it be like with my aunt or my uncle or friends uh-huh. of the family. Um, I actually became, a um, uh, custody of the state of Ohio. Wow. uh, And what age did you become custody of the state of Ohio? I think I was like 10 or 11. Now, Um, if we can get
0: at least a thumbnail picture of what things were like before then that led to that. Yeah. I
1: think, I think the thumbnail picture that I could give you that, uh, of things that look like, I mean, what it looked like then is that, you know, I was constantly being placed, you know, 20 days, 30 days. 15 days. Oh, we can take him for a month. Oh, we can, sure. I mean, by the time I was, uh, 14 years old, I had been to 27 different foster homes. Oh wow. And, and I don't mean foster as in like, these are technical foster parents, but they weren't my parents. Sure. And it wasn't my home and yeah. this wasn't my family. And, um, we don't eat this food, <laughs> you know, yeah, it was, yeah. it was a constant, um, it was a constant changing yeah. of my, um, security and my safety. Yeah, everything. And, I mean, just when you're a child growing up that's what I knew was to just pack up and move when things got tough you got up and you packed up and you left
0: right so very hard to form um, attachments to form any kind of a real I guess relationship with others
1: well I mean you're constantly seeing yourself through the eyes of other people and always you're a new person right so you can technically be whoever you want to be sure and i think as a young gay man i think i i wanted to be so many things to so many people because yeah i, I was so afraid of what other people were going to find out about me well sure i'm I mean, sure
0: I've, the sense of judgment as well because you just that must have been like baked in at a certain point because you're going to these different places and it must feel like i'm just guessing that your success in this situation is predicated on are they going to like me are they going to value me are they things that anyone would think but you're doing this at such a rate of
1: uh of progress of of, of, of turnover it's like speed dating yeah you know right right. it's like speed speed parenting or speed childhood yeah um so i felt like i was just constantly observing learning how and where to fit in and then i became a mimicker I became oh, somebody that sure. would mimic, mirror mimic and, and yeah. mirror my environment. Sure, um, I, you know, if I was living in a really urban part of the neighborhood, I became very much that person. Sure, a survival and, thing, basically. One hundred percent. But the crazy thing about all of that is, is that looking back on it, mm-hmm. I realized that that was preparing me. what sure. my, my ultimate destiny was right. My ultimate destiny is to live this life share it with other people. Right. And experience um, so many things on such a rapid level, such a rapid basis. Not anybody gets that kind of I mean that was that was boot camp 101 That's, for me.
0: yeah, absolutely. For, did you, did like the 10,000 hours of 100% training, right? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I'm
1: I'm licensed <laughs> in how to fucking be mobile.
0: In the documentary short that you sent me, uh, your friend says something about you can walk into any room in any situation and and own it. Yeah, exactly. Which is an important thing for people to think about because it really changes how you relate to the world and also your comfortability in situations. You know, anyone who's had social anxiety and walking into a party where you don't know that many people or whatever, you know, any situation like that when you can get to that it's an incredibly powerful thing
1: i think what i can say that would make that relatable to people that don't um understand what this life is like is yeah. you know when you go to buy um let's say a gucci bag sure and you really want the gucci bag but it's too expensive it's what you really want but it's too expensive sure so you go buy the fake one yeah when you go buy the fake one you walk into the room And everybody knows it's fake. Not because anybody knows it specifically is fake, but because you know it's fake. Yes, and you're radiating that. And so you're fraud. You're a fraud. And everybody starts perceiving you as a fraud, not because they know specifically that you are one, but because you've been projecting that the entire time since you walked in the room. That's an incredible way to summarize it. It's absolutely true. And I feel like for me now, as an adult in my 40s, I no longer feel like a fraud. Right. I have waited long enough to buy the Gucci bag that I wanted. Yeah. I have spent the amount of hours that it took to earn the money to buy the bag, and now I'm walking with the bag, and I'm walking proudly with it. Yeah. And even though it's my only bag, <laughs> it's mine.
0: It's yours. Yeah. It's and it, mine,
1: and I no longer care about what anybody else thinks of it. Yeah. Because even if it, even if it was fake,
0: mm-hmm. I own it. Yeah. And it's the difference between buying a fake bag and worrying about someone. Catching you out or buying a fake bag and being like, and sort of having a little laugh to yourself at saying, like, oh, no one knows this is fake.
1: Isn't this great? The thing is, is that when I was feeling that way, I needed to get high in order to laugh at myself. Oh, okay, I couldn't laugh at myself sober. Sure, because my life was traumatizing. Yeah, you know what right. I had been through, and the things that I had experienced, and the things that I had seen—it was traumatizing to me. And I think it took me years and years and years to realize that it was trauma that I was experiencing.
0: Sure, because also sometimes we tell ourselves that, like, oh, I, it wasn't that bad. Like, I shouldn't whine. I shouldn't complain.
1: Well, right? I mean, when you see things. You know, the way I saw them when I was young and when I was growing up, when I was, you know, formidable, I was. Used to that being normal that was normal. So what were some of those things? I mean, just, you know the physical abuse the drug abuse the sure. alcoholism the um, And this would be seen at
0: foster homes or what when you between age zero Collectively and 10. collectively. It, okay. Now it's between zero and ten if you don't mind. Yeah Sharing a little idea of what we so were you in a family home or were you? So in?
1: I was my mother was really young. Yeah, and she had my brother and sister when I was like four so we're 4 years apart, my brother and sister are twins. And um they're you know, they're gorgeous kids. I love them. But my mom was 18 when she had them. Yeah, very young. So my mom's yeah. 18 now with four children or three children. Yeah, that's it. And um I, a lot. I can't I mean I think then looking up at her as the superwoman that I felt like I needed her to be, yeah. um I felt disappointed. You know, mm-hmm. she wasn't enough. She wasn't everything I needed her to be. Yeah. And I think Based on the living situation that she had put herself into, and the people that she had surrounded herself with, she felt for my best interest and for my safety to push me off to someone else. I see. Okay. And so, looking back on it, I realized my mom did that so that I could survive. Right. right. I can't imagine being my brother and sister and Mm. seeing what they seen. I mean, is it a is it a curse or is it a blessing? Sure. My being raised with my mother for me would have been a curse. OK, it would have been a curse. Yeah, she would have. I mean, who knows what I would have experienced right, right at the hands of somebody that's not capable of being a mother. In hindsight, I think that it was a blessing. And I, well, I know it was a blessing yeah. because I'm here now. Right. And um, I don't think that I would have been here had that been different right it's i don't a, think that could have been possible
0: it's interesting too that um and i hope you don't mind me vaping it's nicotine uh, i'm
1: actually gonna vape too oh, i fabulous. saw you yeah. and i was like oh.
0: <laughs> yeah i always mean to say that before to be like hey whatever you have yeah so what what kind of pen is that this is
1: a soren air oh,
0: okay yeah. Cool. And it
1: has um 5% nicotine.
0: Oh yeah, I do the 5% nicotine I, as well. Yeah. yeah it's I'm great. F- full on as much as they can give.
1: <laughs> it's great. Well, you know what the crazy thing is is that I have um I've limited myself now. I mean, the cra- I mean, shoot. When I started doing this thing i used to sleep with it in my hand oh I, yeah that's what i do yeah and if i and, and if i wake up i mean even before i check my phone oh yeah. i'm hitting this thing.
0: that's what i do yeah
1: it, it's like a rat in a cage
0: yeah no exactly it's always in my hand and then particularly doing the show i always just have it there but um Back to uh, what we were talking about, and we can always get back to nicotine. It's always there. Yeah. Um, so she um, puts you into the foster system.
1: Well, she would, she didn't put me into anything. It oh, okay. was kind of like a um, a series of uh, circumstantial events. Oh, okay. You know, my life has never been about. Um, uh, about uh, choice, it's always been about circumstance. Okay, yeah. um, and everything that I've ever been through has been because this happened. Now this has to happen. Okay, yeah. And I think that that's pretty much the way that life works in general. I think so. Yeah. But I, I mean, I have met people in the world whose, you know, parents or elders had enough foresight to be able to prepare themselves for the what ifs. Right. We were never prepared for the what ifs. My mom was just basically like, "Hey, once she let go." Then it was up to the person who took responsibility for me to put me somewhere else. Sure, okay. Um, by the time I came back around, I was old enough to come back around and be with my mother, um, it was an abusive situation. I was just coming out of my shell. I was starting to become extremely comfortable in my sexuality and who mm-hmm. I was as a person. And what age would this be? I was, um, I was 11. Wow, okay. Yeah, I was 11 and I knew, my mom had cornered me one day in the car um, and she said to me, I know what you are, are. And I I just took that as, uh, she, knew that she knew that what I was saying and how I was acting was not the truth. And I didn't know this woman from Adam and I didn't really care because I'm so adjusted to being moved sure. somewhere else if it doesn't work out, that yeah. I just said to her, I said, yeah, that I'm gay. And um, she took that as a sign of uh, direct disrespect and it became a very physical um, alter, I mean, it was a very physical and violent altercation for a couple of months um, to the point where, I went to school one day and my entire left side was so black and blue um, from the night before. And I was tired. I was worn out. And I had a best friend, Christina, who went directly to the principal's office and said, this is not normal. Sure. This kid is being abused. Something is wrong. And the police came. They took me out of my home, um, took me right out of class and uh, put me right into the foster care system. Wow. Um, And it was one of those things where you have enough... um, You have enough uh, still enough hope to believe that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, but I was devastated. I can imagine. I was devastated because I was finally back in the home of my mom,
0: which is such an amazing thing to comprehend. Like in the midst of all the abuse, there's still this feeling like this hunger Uh, to be accepted at home despite all of that stuff. I'm
1: 43 years old and I still wait for my mom to peel the corner and tell me I'm sorry. Uh-huh. I love you. You know, I think that that's something that just is born within you of and you're just, you're always going to seek that love and that approval from the people that created you. Of course. Absolutely. And when you feel rejected and when you feel like you are um, not accepted by the people who created you, right. Who are predispositioned to love you. Yeah. No, yeah. Supposedly, no matter what,
0: supposedly yeah. all, all of that. Yeah, hypothetically. yeah. Yeah. right, Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, in, in the, you know, uh,
1: the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that it looks on TV. Sure. The absolutely. way that it's, Forced down your throat. It never looked like that. So of course I always felt different. Of course I always felt like something was wrong with me.
0: Of course it must have made it terribly hard to uh, arrive at self acceptance.
1: Well, and that's the greatest thing about running away. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to condone people running away and running off into the streets. But you know, sometimes in order to find yourself, you have to kind of go off into the distance and create space. Um, You know, the people that were showing me myself and mirroring myself at that age did not see me the way that I saw myself. And I was just tired of seeing myself as a monster. I wasn't a monster. But I mean, then again, we're also talking about, you know, an era that gay didn't exist. Right. You know, I mean, and if it did, it was really hidden. Yeah, Um, You know, RuPaul wasn't even out. Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, those people weren't even out and and, in their own skin. So it certainly wasn't being projected on screen.
0: No, and the 80s were a really bad time for perception of gay. I mean, if you look at the homophobia in the stand-up comedy, if you look at uh, even the fact that Queen, one of the biggest groups that ever were, had such a backlash against their uh, I Want to Break Free video when they dressed in drag that essentially because of that they didn't tour america yeah you know what i mean that's very weird but yeah. that was 1984 85 yeah. and so you're talking about getting into this is a, a, between that and 1988 89 so you're talking right? about
1: the peak of the you know the Reagan, AIDS, yeah, yeah. AIDS, AIDS epidemic, epidemic yeah. and 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 how people viewed the disease and how yeah. people viewed the the people who were supposedly the only ones carrying it And so, you know, I got that a lot, you know, Uh you're, you're gay, you're going to die of AIDS. This is going to be your life. I just want you to see a little glimpse into the window of your future. And this is what it's going to look like. And I just knew that that wasn't true. Sure. You know, in order to be, uh, in order to have that happen to you, you have to have done something or something has to have happened to you. And I was going to live my life, making sure that none of those things happened to me. Yeah. I'm not going to say that I've ever been, you know, uh, somebody that's been so careful and so protective of myself where it wasn't a possibility. Sure. I'm grateful that I haven't had to have that type of um, pain brought up upon my life physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. But I think that that's probably why, um, you know, part of it I think that is luck, and part of it I feel is um, me being so hyper aware of it that i was petrified um, yeah. it made me it made me unable to uh to enjoy sex fully sure until yeah. i started doing drugs
0: uh-huh now what era would that be and actually before we get to there when was the first time that you had sex
1: uh first time that i had sex willingly mm-hmm. or unwillingly
0: oh okay well okay what was your first sexual so, experience then? sexual Let's...
1: experience period i was six years old so yeah, I was six yeah. years old. And the crazy thing is it was with a babysitter. Yeah. Um, it was my mother's first stepfather, my brother and sister's dad. Um, it was his nephew that used to come in and watch me. He was 16, I was six. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was extremely attracted to him. But it was the first time that a male had ever paid that much attention to me. Yeah. So the crazy thing is the whole time I'm sitting here being sexually assaulted and abused as a child and I liked it. Sure. Um, which I can completely understand. You know, later on in life, you know why people like to feel abused, like to feel, you know, choked or um uh forced into doing things when they're willingly doing stuff. That yeah. that stuff resonates well with me. Yeah. Because I understand what happened in a person's life that would make them want to have that be something pleasurable. Sure. Yeah.
0: Associations form pretty easily, especially when you don't have affection Absolutely. coming towards you in healthy ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I think, um, it also is the reason why, you know, he was redheaded with brown eyes. It's a reason why any redhead with brown eyes that comes near me. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know who well, I'm just super attracted yeah, to guys sure. like that. Yeah. Um, uh, I think they're beautiful. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the first thing that sticks out for me, like a, a sore thumb, yeah. you know, I, I, that's, that's what I go for.
0: And so that started when you were six and how long did that go on for?
1: It went on for a couple of years uh-huh. um, off and on, you know, like I said, I was constantly being placed in sure. other places. So when I would go back into that environment and that was the environment that I was living in, that's what I would be subjected to. Right. And um, you know, it, it went on for a couple of years and it started there. And then it we went from that stepbrother with that stepfather, um, not stepbrother with stepfather, but that stepfather and his Uh, kin to my next stepfather and his son, Wow, you know, and, um, his son was just a couple years older than me, but also still older, still male. And, um, you know, he used to come in drunk and he used to, you know, we used to do things together and I was in love with him, Uh but I also wanted him to save me from the environment that I was living in also, you know, also because I was living truth with him and being who I knew I was Yeah, and then having to hide it everywhere else in my life. So I felt like he was the one to save me. The only difference is is he wasn't out and he wasn't open to that. And being bi or gay, that wasn't, you didn't do that. I mean, he's currently married now with children. Mm -hmm. Um, so again,
0: there's that secrecy and the shame.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it brings me to the point when I just finally had enough I had enough. I got sick and tired of it. I was put into foster care against my will. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go there, but where else was I going to go? Right. And um, I was sick and tired of being physically abused and verbally abused. I was sick and tired of watching my mother be abused. I mean, yeah. don't, don't, you know, please don't misunderstand uh, me. I mean, I wasn't the only person being abused in a home. Yeah. Um, we were all being abused. It's wild to imagine that, that that's just like the daily norm. That was that, the norm. Yeah. That was the norm. When I met somebody whose family did not interact the way that mine did, and when I learned that what I was living was not the norm, yeah, um, it scared me. Really, it scared yeah. me. Yeah, it petrified me because I, um, again, started to uh, mimic other people and sure. who I was with and I could adapt very quickly. And yeah. that scared me. Mm-hmm. That really scared me because I could go into a home that was, you know, a multi-million-dollar home with people that I had just moved into the neighborhood. I had just, you know, befriended a kid down the street and his family was very well off. And all of a sudden I was very comfortable in their environment. Right. Um, and it, it frightened me because it was kind of like the wheel of chance. Who was I going to become? Mm-hmm. Which one of these people was I going to land on and this was going to make it stick? This was, this sure. was who I was going to become.
0: Now, when you say it was frightening because of that, uh, do you think that there's a, an element in everyone that that is a possibility for, but yet most people don't have either the option or the circumstance forced upon them in which to do so?
1: I think that when you're a child, you are constantly looking for ways to mimic your environment yeah. and ways to mimic behavior of the people around you and belong, and, and because you then that's that's your core, that's the people that you belong to. So if Dad acts that way and I act that way, then it's normal, it's right. okay, and I'm going to be accepted. I'm not going to be chastised. I'm not going to be called out for it. Sure, beaten um, or it's your pack. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So when in Rome, you do as the pack does. Exactly. So. For me, it was constantly just this this wheel of fortune of you know I would go from one place that was really really good and yeah. felt really well, um, uh, it just resonated well with me. Yeah, to going to a place where I was like, this place smells of urine. Uh, there's yeah. dogs and animals everywhere. Uh, the lady cooking hasn't washed her hands. Like, is this what I'm going? It was a constant battle and a struggle for me not to be judgmental, mm-hmm. to be grateful of where I was at, and to. Um, hope and pray that this isn't how it's going to end up for me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. You know, sure. I,
1: I I don't want to end up being the, the cat piss lady who doesn't no. know how to wash her hands.
0: No, exactly. Yeah. So and there must've been a lot of just floating terror, free floating anxiety with you all the time.
1: Of course. And that's the reason why at 14 years old, I said, okay, I can continue being scared in these people's um, uh, control. You right. know, These people that have the, uh, the ability to put me wherever it is they see fit. Yeah or I can take a risk and I can go out there on my own mm-hmm. and I can do it for myself. Right. And I knew that once I got past those gates, once I got out that window, once I got beyond that roof, that if I was the one who made the decisions of where I went and where I didn't go, yeah. that everything would be okay. Yeah and the crazy thing is is that it was everything was fine i met uh three drag queens who took me into their home i had a curfew Mm -hmm. um they taught me about myself because they were sharing with me their journey and what Mm -hmm. they had been through um they started teaching me about makeup and hair and as a young kid i wanted to be a hair braider i mean i didn't know what it was called i just knew i wanted to be a a hairstylist you're just drawn to certain things Yeah, yeah absolutely and um here it is being placed right in front of me this guy who does hair and he does makeup and he does drag and yeah drag really repulsed me really uh in the beginning yeah i was a kid and i was really tormented and twisted with the visual idea of it mm-hmm. it seemed again um like fraud okay it seemed like someone passing themselves off as something else and it seemed fraudulent okay sure and um you know back then this was uh, you know, during the late 80s, early 90s. And this is when you had to have a male article of clothing on in order to go out in that kind of attire. Oh, okay. Because wow. if you were pulled over by the cops and you didn't have a clothing on that represented your gender yeah. you could go to jail you'd be arrested really? for it oh yeah absolutely oh wow absolutely well, what, was, what would the charge be is I like, impersonating
0: a woman or
1: i don't know false false representation of wow. a, a of a sex i don't i don't know exactly what the yeah. what the charge would be but i knew that it was something that was told to me it was very really yeah, sure. real and yeah. it was something that was you know i mean and to this day i still have my my <laughs> male underwear on underneath all my drag
0: sure wow um, i wonder if it had anything to do with uh, solicitation of prostitution i'm sure or... it did oh, okay i'm
1: sure it did it was columbus ohio it was sure you know yeah, yeah. 1989 1990 it was right. you know primitive <laughs> yeah sure of course yeah absolutely primitive but you know these people uh, uh mark olivia and ariel mm-hmm. or armando Each one of them had, uh, you know, two names. So I might call one of them by both, which is another Uh, interesting
0: aspect of the drag world, right? Or performers in general. I mean, there's a lot of stage names, but there's. I'm sure the both of us. How many of our friends have two names? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, And that also speaks to a certain amount of thinking and processing, or thinking about and processing identity in general. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sometimes I, I'm just f- formulating a thought. No, this that's the stuff I I could pull Listen, on.
1: I could literally listen to your voice all night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that works. That's even better when I get lost for a point. Um, and I think that the thinking about identity is something that you were already doing intensely and probably not aware of it, because we aren't at that age, you know. But no. it's on your mind all the time, particularly with the mimicking and the mirroring and adjusting to your environment. Absolutely. So um, that must have been a lot to process, especially because now you're getting the healthy kind of attention. from people
1: but i think what it was for me is i was seeing what i had known it to be all along it's fraudulent and i was watching people make it be something else okay okay Um, so it felt comfortable it felt safe i knew exactly how to do it but you have to understand as a child i'm learning how to change it and make it look like something it's not Okay, right. I'm learning right. very, very early on and for a very long period of time yes. how to make myself appear differently yeah. uh, to other people. Sure. How to make myself presentable.
0: And to project a certain thing that you want to project.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and the crazy thing is, the, it doesn't matter what you try to project. <laughs> right. What other people perceive it to be is what it actually is. Yes, that's true, isn't it? It's yeah. very true. Yeah. 100%.
0: And now a special word from... Hi, Divas, it's me, Rubber Child. And if you want to, I would appreciate it if you could check out the link in the description box down there a little bit lower for my go fund me for my medical transition i would really appreciate it and even if you can't a little share is free a little like is free and i appreciate it and i love you all Mm, and don't you want to return that love so that's right just take those fingers and go down just a little bit further and uh and (laughs) press right where you know where you should (laughs) oh see you you already feel the difference now Mm -hmm. donate and share. Do both. If you can't donate, just share. Okay.
1: Now in my adult life, I no longer try to uh, to, uh, candy coat it, sugar coat it. Uh, I don't try to hide anything. You know, my addiction and my recovery is out there. Um, you know, it holds me accountable. Yeah. All the things that I'm doing, I put myself out there. I put it all out there because I want people to know who I am. I find
0: also that the more say on the show that I've revealed about myself or come to terms with and then revealed it's so empowering because it just builds on itself. So things that you maybe you're unsure about or anxious about, like I'm not, I don't feel that way anymore about certain things and the show's been a huge part of that because I do now pretty much put everything out there. I mean, I don't know if you heard the episode, but I got a call from a clinic on the air. So <laughs> <laughs> putting my clothes back on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, no, everything's fine. Everything's everything's
0: taking care. I'm very fastidious about my health. Uh, it was but I just, love, uh, I, yeah. I love
1: that we're so free now. Yes. You know, yeah. to be out there and, and, and it exists, right? You know, yeah. so many people that I know are affected with so many things that they're yeah. not willing to be open and honest about. And it's sad. It is because it also creates a prison. Yeah. For yourself. Yeah. I have friends of mine that currently live in a prison and don't even realize it.
0: Right. And it's the, and it's impossible to uh, communicate that because they won't hear it.
1: I can only encourage you to walk through the door. I can't walk you through it.
0: Right. And that's so true with so many things. I mean, with addiction uh, in particular, right? That's what people always say, like you can't.
1: Well, with someone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, but I find that that's such a perfect example, like a, the ultimate version of that. Do you know what I mean? If someone's like killing themselves, there's nothing that can be done unless they don't want to kill themselves. Absolutely.
1: A lot of people that I even uh, continue to be friends with now yeah. saw me in the worst of it, saw me in the height of it and they did nothing. And I used to be so mad at them for it. Yeah. Now I'm so grateful that they just let it run its course.
0: Right. Because know? what
1: can you do? Uh, you for know, others, I mean, I don't know. I I have this feeling now. You know, I, I I for me, I wish that I had me then, had me now then, right? Uh, Because to just mirror my behavior, mirror what I was doing, and to just you know wake me up, snap me out. Yeah. Um, For me, you know my entire childhood i had one best friend okay her name was christina and um she followed me through the foster care system through all the family trials and tribulations she's the one that called the 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 children's services right right um her family was my family yeah when i was around them and even to this day we're still very close but she had passed away at the time that my drug use got really, really heavy. Oh wow! She died of uh, synovial sarcoma, uh-huh. and I watched her go through some of the most challenging things that a human being can go through, and it destroyed me. Yeah, because back then, as a drug user, as somebody who was you know out there in the open using drugs and it being okay because I didn't give anybody else a choice. Um, I her pain was my. Um, it was look at me. Look at what's happening to me. My best friend is dying. Look at this. My my best friend has cancer. And so I failed to realize that she was the one going through the pain. She was the one having yeah. the, the traumatic experience. Yeah. I was so selfish and so self-centered that I failed to realize how I how I could have been there for her.
0: Sure, which is understandable given the sort of maladaptive situations that you you know uh, had course. to go through and everything. I find sometimes that uh self-pity is a thing that is easy. To grab onto because it helps to create an identity, and particularly when you've gone through all these different uh, identities,
1: really, and, and for a long time, that was my identity was uh-huh. the victim. Yeah, look at look at all that I've been through
0: because it's also comfortable because it's uh, it's a compounded version of all the pain yeah and, and it's a, and it, because the, the pain is so ever-present in certain situations particularly what sounds like with yours that it's like okay well that's who i am then right yeah
1: imagine being my first boyfriend it was horrible <laughs> 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 my first my first partner sean oh my god i was with him for years and years and years we were married i changed my last name to his wow um and i was very successful during that time with him because he gave me safety and he gave me something stable sure um and what age would this be uh he was 10 years older than i was i was uh 16 17 uh-huh. so he was 26 27 sure um and uh that was the that was the moment that i moved from columbus to detroit oh, okay yeah um, because uh, I was a young kid, and I was still a ward of the state, and by running away from foster care, I became, uh, I was, you know, I was, uh, are you obst- like a
0: fugitive then? Like what's the,
1: yeah, basically that's what they turn you into. You, you start, um, it's called obstructing official business. Okay. And so when you are a ward of the state, you belong to the state. Um, they have the right to pick you up and put you into a detention center, just as if you had robbed or killed or murdered somebody. Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So and th- I- well,
0: that's mind blowing. Cause I'm just thinking about all the people that didn't successfully, get away from the area where they're a wanted individual yep. and then get put into the system in that way.
1: That's exactly how people get introduced into the system when they're young, Wow, is by being in the wrong place the wrong time or trying to flee from a situation that is harmful yeah. and no one will listen to them. Right. I was um, taken from my home because of abusive situations and then when I would try to talk to my caseworker about other abusive situations yeah. that were happening in my foster home, yeah, it was overlooked. It was ignored because how could these people that you know open their home to to fostering children like i don't think you realize the, the amount of work that these people have to put into yeah. you know doing this for you
0: yeah and also there's the the unwillingness to do another round of paperwork
1: absolutely fucking right yeah because you you just become another uh you're a number yeah you're part of the system sure and and no matter where if you're behind bars or you're in the system and you're out in the open and you're in the public eye you are you're part of a system right a system that only categorizes you by number and paperwork they don't see a face they don't Uh know your story and they don't care they don't care i know i mean and that's not all foster homes believe me i have met some foster parents that are just i wished i could have stayed there yeah but of course those are the ones that they take you out of the quickest (laughs) Uh, now
0: why do they do that Uh, is what's the sort of methodology
1: i was in in 30-day placement when i got into foster care Uh, yeah so 30-day placement means that um you are a risk to the home, you're a risk oh, to yourself. Okay. You're not a uh, a physical threat, but you know back then. Being so open about who I was and being out and being gay and still trying to come to terms with who I was as a person, sure, um, it was considered a risk for the home. I see. So other foster kids coming in there, now I was risky to them.
0: Oh, okay, because of your alternative uh, ways, correct? Or whatever. Because yeah. of
1: my deviant lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not only were they putting me in therapy and trying to get me to coerce me into being and living a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, which I would assume would be to just say that I wasn't gay and just, you know, shut up and, and stop talking about it and stop seeking out ways to explore it.
0: Yeah. Um, cause what else were you doing at that time? Was it just being gay and doing that? Or were there any other I was, behavioral? Well, things? of
1: course I was doing things, you know, we didn't have internet. There was no online, there was no computers, there was no cell phones. Sure. Um, so I was going through phone books and I was looking through, you know, anything that was gay. I went so far as to finding a recreational center uh, uh worker who i knew was gay yeah looking him up in the phone book yeah calling him personally on his phone yeah and trying to ask him what i could do sure Th- there was no support there was yeah. no there there was no um
0: resource center there was or nothing uh yeah There was
1: nothing out there. And um, so I would find where a gay bar was in the book, and I would go hang out in the the parking lot of the gay bar and wait for people to come in and out. And scared to death that, you know, I mean, I don't know what I would have said if somebody came up to me, but believe me, being as young as I was and, you know, Looking the way that I did, it opened me to a lot of other opportunities to explore my sexuality and to explore my gayness. And those aren't things that people really knew about me or found out about me, but they were things that I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was out there actively seeking out who I was in the eyes of other people of the uh, in the eyes of complete strangers. Sure, yeah, Um, and and I was doing it at such a young age. I'm so. uh, I'm so grateful that nothing really bad happened to me. Right, right. Um, I mean, I I recall only one time actually where uh, a guy had offered me a joint and I was young and i passed out and i remember him walking me into his apartment and i remember physically fighting him oh wow to put me down and let me go outside of the door yeah um and and i and i ran as fast as i could but that was the only time where i ever felt like i was really in a a really detrimental risky situation where that fear and that stomach flip came in where i was like oh my god i'm gonna die
0: yeah right right um
1: but those are the things I had to do to figure out who I was and and, and to even, you know, within a month of being told you're wrong, this is, this isn't, you know, reality, this isn't going to work out well for you. Even if it was just for five minutes to interact with somebody who I knew saw me or I could recognize in them something that I could recognize in myself, even for five minutes, it was worth it.
0: Sure. So you have the first boyfriend. When was the first time you had uh, sex willingly then?
1: Uh, was probably 16. And, uh, it was, um, before I met Sean and I had met a guy who had seen me performing at a show bar in Toledo, Mm -hmm. a little show bar called Brett's.
0: And so at this point you've been doing drag for how long roughly?
1: Uh, About a year. Okay. About a year.
0: And you'd overcome the feeling of this is fake. And how did that go? Well,
1: then it was just a point of survival. I see. Because I, see. I had left the three queens in Columbus, and I had oh. moved to Toledo. Because oh, right, to, Toledo. Okay, right. To, yeah. You, I I left that out. Um. You know, my story might jump around a little. bit No, that's okay. But it's the
0: nature of the show. It's because of It's a good. You know, it's a real conversation. You know, that's I mean? amazing. Yeah.
1: Um. But yeah, I had gone from you know living in Columbus with these three queens who were housing me. Yeah. To now, everybody was knowing that there was a young child living in this home Oh, I see. And so the gay community would. They were starting to they were starting to receive threats of we're gonna tell we're gonna and i was that was threatening my stability and my security but it was also it was also threatening three people that didn't deserve to be put through anything absolutely i mean when i tell you the amount of care that these people took care of me yeah was it, it it was it was godlike
0: absolutely you know and then finally too you had the situation that was nurturing and caring and
1: supportive i had a curfew i had to write book reports i mean i had to literally write book reports for these drag queens (laughs) yeah i mean it it blew my mind i i kind of was like oh oh but that's that's how i make my living here is that's how i I earn my keep is sure i do what they tell me to do yeah they never put me into a situation that was um unsafe or or um, risky, yeah. I was never asked to do anything sexually or physically for them, um, I was just allowed to be, and it, it was the first time in my life where I was actually just able to absorb the environment around me and make my own decisions. Yeah, And then when that was being threatened from being taken away from me, they moved me, yeah. and they moved me to Toledo.
0: Okay, so right, so, so they were part and parcel of that whole thing. Then. Oh, that's absolutely. Amazing.
1: They, they, you know, they called the underground drag queens, because yeah. <laughs> that's what they were back then. Yeah. You know, they were they were creatures of the night. They sure. were not out in the open. I mean, how could anybody with no eyebrows go out in public? <laughs> and um, you know, they put me into a car with a drag queen that is still out working. I think she lives in Florida now, and she took me to a place called Caesar Show Bar. In in Toledo and I started working immediately and everybody knew I was underage and nobody said anything.
0: They all just kind of knew your story. Well, no, they didn't. No, I mean, they They, knew that something was, there's some reason They knew something was adrift,
1: but here's, here's what was adrift. The owner of the bar was a pedophile and allowed me to move into his home and um, would supervise me. I he see. was supervising me the whole time. I did not know that I thought, wow, this man is so nice. He's going to take care of me. He's going to give me the amount of money that I need to live every week, which, yeah. I mean, I think I was probably making like $25 a night right. working, right. working three shows a night, five nights a week.
0: Right. But because you don't have anything to compare it to. Absolutely. I yeah. was a prisoner
1: Yeah, and, um, and I was at his beck and call and, I put myself in situations with that man in order to survive that wouldn't necessarily be looked at as willing, but but they were my choices. I could have left at any, any given moment. Um, that's what
0: happens. You know, if you have this sort of, again, maladaption to things and, no real reference point Absolutely. for what's healthy or good for you. It
1: then just becomes solely based on survival. Right. So I wasn't doing drag because I no longer had the feelings of this is gross, this is disgusting, something's wrong with this, mm-hmm. this isn't right. I was now just doing this because I was surviving. Exactly. I wasn't in foster care. Um I was getting to know who I was as a person. My uh, I started to feel comfortable in my own skin for the first time, whatever yeah. that was, because sure. I felt like I was putting on a new skin every single night. Yeah. And then um, I finally made, I saw an opening in the door where I could leave and I did. And it was because of this guy. Um, his name is Michael. He yeah. lives here in LA. Yeah. I'm still friends with him. I know him to this day. He's someone that I, I, I can I can directly, you know, access. Yeah, sure. Um, even to this day, and this is, you know, 25 30 years later right right um but i met him in a show bar called brett's yeah um i had left the show bar that i was at it was right down the street in toledo and they were giving me an opportunity to do shows there and then again it became this thing of we know he's we know he's uh, underage yeah we're gonna put you out for it Uh and it was you're gonna have to go wow and so i met this guy michael who used to come up from detroit or down from Detroit to Toledo and he used to watch my shows and Michael was the most beautiful man I had ever seen in my life. Yeah. He was young. He was strong. He looked like Superman um, and he was incredible Yeah, and uh, he didn't care that I did drag Yeah because that was a that's still a thing but especially then I imagine it was quite a thing well then it was horrific and it's actually one of the reasons why I stopped doing drag oh, was you did. because oh yeah I stopped doing drag because it was um, well I'll get to that yeah we'll get to that yeah. but um you know Michael lived in Detroit it wasn't Ohio anymore and I learned uh, that the law was that once I had crossed that border between Ohio and Michigan, Ohio was no longer going to be concerned with me unless I came back to Ohio. Okay, sure. So I left, I was 16 years old. Yeah. I left Ohio and I never looked back. I never looked back. I moved to, um, I moved up there with Michael thinking that he was going to let me live in his house. That's not the way that it went down. Oh no. I ended up meeting one of his friends who was a drug dealer who let me stay in his penthouse with him. Um, and that was crazy. I can because, imagine. Yeah. I mean, here I am living at uh, riverfront towers in downtown Detroit yeah. in the penthouse, <laughs> Um, my next door neighbor was Rosa Parks. Wow. It was crazy. That's wild. It was crazy. <laughs> it was literally history hitting my face. And I was like, I'm living in Motown, yeah. the city I've learned so much about. And, you know, music, that's that's the only thing that really saved me my entire childhood. Okay, music. sure. Of course. So here I am, the birthplace of Madonna. Yeah. Um, the birth of Motown. Uh, my name as well, I mean, my neighbor yeah. is Rosa Parks, right? I just felt like I had arrived oh, I and I was imagine. living yeah. in the penthouse at 16 years old with a guy that, you know, did the same thing as the drag Queens did. He never expected sex for me. I had a curfew. Um, he did not allow me to partake in any drug activities Okay, and, yeah. um, was he even allowed me to get a cat. Wow, <laughs> It was <Yeah. laughs> crazy, it was crazy.
0: Um, so it must've felt like this was it though, this is fine and everything's gonna be and moving it along. W-
1: and it was, until he realized who was gonna get rated and I had to go. Okay. And so I had met some people uh, in Detroit by that time, I think I had lived there for maybe three months, but people that knew me, knew my story, that were willing to let me live with them. I had a job under a fake ID and a fake name um, and a fake age. That's when I met Sean. What job were you doing? With I was building and filling baskets seasonally for the body shop.
0: Okay. I
1: was uh, a basket maker. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and I can't remember, you were still doing drag at this time or did you stop at this time? I
1: was just being introduced to the drag community up in Detroit. So it was like I had done drag in Ohio and then I kind of like left it behind because... I mean, it was the way that I got into nightclubs in Detroit, but I wasn't doing shows there. Gotcha. Um, Finally, um, I met Sean. Sean was 10 years older than I was. He made a lot more money than I did. Uh And um, he started taking care of me. So I didn't have to do anything. Right. Um, And... I was really blessed for that you Mm -hmm. know i just kind of it was weird how we met i was supposed to move in with his ex-boyfriend in his apartment and sean was supposed to be moving out because they were breaking up and on christmas eve i remember moving into the apartment and sean was packing his stuff and for some reason i forget what happened but the ex never showed up who i was supposed to be roommates with Mm -hmm. and sean and i ended up just living there for the next two or three years (laughs) (laughs) That's how I ended up with my first, my first lover. Yeah. Now, when did the drug use start? The drug use, I was really anti-drugs at that time Uh and all the way up until Sean and I had separated. I was extremely anti-drugs. And I think that that came from me growing up the way that I did. And
0: seeing the the horrors that it brought upon, I mean,
1: it just horrific, you know, and and also not knowing what it would do to me. Um, and again,
0: you you had a lot of variables going on. I'm sure it was like, I don't need another. I um, was never.
1: I going to let somebody have control over me again yeah. to put me in a situation that was ever uncomfortable. If I was going to do it, I was going to do it because I did it. Right. Um, and so I was very anti-drug, very anti-everything, anti-alcohol, anti-everything. I yeah. never drank. I never smoked. I didn't even smoke weed. Mm-hmm. I think the one time I smoked weed was on my 20th birthday mm-hmm. uh, with Sean and I got so wasted. I think I shit myself. <laughs> I really did. I think I shit myself. I remember having on an all white gauze, like oh, perfect linen outfit. Yeah. You know, I was rich. It was his money. <laughs> and, um, and I remember going to like one of those Benihanas or something like that. And I literally shit myself the whole way home. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Horribly humiliating. Can't imagine, but yeah. I mean, I'm human. I yeah, shit. These things happen.
0: Yeah, <laughs> We all shit our pants sometimes.
1: But, um, I got a job working for Matt cosmetics mm-hmm. and I was, um, really, Really successful in that job, um, and of course, my my drag history gave me the opportunity to get a lot of education in on what drag makeup was. And sure, back then Mac was drag makeup. Yeah, I mean, right. That's where right. you got all your supplies if you were a drag queen. Sure, and um, I got a job working for them when I was eighteen. So. When I was 18, immediately got hired in off the street for Mm -hmm. Matt Cosmetics. Three months later, I became a creative artist for them. It was the position that they had before they had trainers. Sure, Um, And it was somebody who was looked at as the source of inspiration for the rest of the team.
0: Which must have felt wonderful.
1: It was amazing. But at the same time, I also had a lot of people that had worked for the company for several years that were looking to gain inspiration for somebody that they felt didn't deserve that job Uh and was too young to hold it.
0: Sure. Okay. So a lot of pressure from within the company of against course, you. But I
1: mean, I'm, you know, hey, where I've come from and what I've been through, I there mean, I think I was yeah. used to it. Yeah, sure. I was right. used to it. And I didn't care because I knew I was badass and I knew I deserved it. I worked hard to get there. Uh, about a year into that position, they opened up what was called the trainer position. Yeah. And so I had to reapply the person who was a creative artist was not automatically guaranteed that position. Okay. And that was scary for me sure, because I didn't want to lose that position. Yeah. And of course, if I didn't get the trainer position, my position would become obsolete and then I would just become like everyone else. Yeah. So I worked really hard to get that position. I was the, um, you know, one of the first people interviewed in the company as far as that was concerned. And I was the first trainer hired from Michigan in ohio and minnesota wow and i wasn't even 21 yet yeah and you're doing very well very very well and earning a salary i mean back then mac was paying you a lot of money right a lot of right. money because it was still very much an independent company sure uh ran out of toronto owned by you know those two guys
0: Yeah, and was the company basically yeah. for this for this sort of
1: thing absolutely yeah and it, i mean it was it would it opened me up into a lifestyle which then introduced me to you know rupaul Katie Lang were the spokespeople uh, for Viva Glam at the right, time. Right. And we used to do these huge benefits and that's when I really like I was really like inspired to do drag again. Mm-hmm. Started doing drag again in Michigan and um Like I said, Sean was okay with it. He liked it. Yeah. He thought it was great. Sean also was married to a woman and had a child before me. Mm -hmm. And um, I think his sexuality was something that he was very much open to exploring. Sure. So he was Um, more
0: uh, fluid, but not, not uh, conflicted.
1: Yeah. Not conflicted, not compartmentalized. Yeah. um, And didn't put any pressure on me to do it or not do it. Uh He just supported me and loved me. And I think that that was uh, the relationship that I'm constantly and continuing to search for. Even now. Wow. You know, that one relationship that I was too young for. Okay. um, Because we moved. I got a trainer position uh, with Mac, but then I was transferred to Minneapolis to open and develop a new area for Mac Cosmetics. And um, my job moved me away and then took me away on business three times uh three weeks out of the month right so now i had taken my lover and i from detroit to minneapolis where we knew no one yeah and then you weren't and then i wasn't there yeah and so it opened me up to starting to be distrustful of him um you know i would call the answering machine and i would hear you know hey babe i'm gonna meet you down the street and i was like that's not my voice oh yeah um right and he was exploring himself and he was experiencing the people that were there yeah and now looking back on it i understand why i wasn't there sure and i wasn't concerned with him when i was gone when i was gone i was busy working but that's because we had built this safety net together yeah of being okay being successful
0: sure and, and, and I, that almost being the main point of everything
1: absolutely yeah i mean we were i was driving a jaguar i had a house i mean i was i things for myself before yeah. I was 21 years old that most 20 years old, 20 year olds don't get an opportunity to do if at all, ever Right, absolutely absolutely and um and so, so also I,
0: you must have felt like oh well I'm good now everything's fine and it will continue to be
1: well yeah I mean that that person that which was taking care of me and allowing me the opportunity to really build myself up now I was making more money than him so right. I was kind of like you're welcome yeah <laughs> <laughs> that does change the power dynamic too yeah sometimes that can mess with your head it messed with both of our heads mm-hmm. it messed with both of our heads because i would literally just sign my check over to him and i trusted him with all the money and what he was doing mind you he was thirty thousand dollars in debt when i met him and when we separated he had no debt so i mean i i was contributing yes, let's certainly. just say the least yeah right um but um
0: but did you feel uh sort of uh beholden to do that because of when you met him you were in a much lower financial I just position. Didn't, or? I didn't
1: know anything about money. Okay. I knew that if I wanted something, I could afford it, and I would get it. Yeah. He would be the one to manage the books and take care of you know what I had, what we didn't have. Yeah. Um, I didn't have dual access to my bank account. I just asked oh. him for money, my oh, own wow. money. Wow. Um. But I trusted him. He was yeah. my he was my husband. Sure. Uh, to to the extent that he was able to be my husband at that time. Yeah. I changed my name legally uh, when I turned eighteen because i was afraid that people would be able to uh recognize me or pinpoint me for being that i wanted to leave that old life behind completely yeah and so when he said do you want to get married i said yeah but i'm taking your name and so i became jeremy chance
0: you have this gig with mac you're going all over the country or the world i was
1: going all over the country i've still even at 43 years old have never left the country Oh wow. I've gone to Canada. That's not really the same thing.
0: I used to say that too when I f- did my first international trip to Australia. I was like, "Well, I've been to Canada, but it doesn't really count." <laughs> yeah, I mean it, I mean it doesn't.
1: There's a tunnel that takes you there from Detroit <laughs> yeah. right there. It's yeah, not, you can
0: I, drive right over the border. There's yeah. Oh, that's right for Detroit especially. yeah. Right, yeah, you can
1: go right under the tunnel or right over the bridge and um Yeah, I've never... I've been to Hawaii. That's still part of the continental U.S. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that's as far as I've ever gone. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm Um, sure it
0: sounds like uh, that's not too far away, international travel. Hey,
1: listen, I hope so. If if that's what my life has for me and is going to open up for me, then I welcome it with open arms. Yeah. Absolutely. Whatever now, I mean, nowadays, I just... Whatever is put before me and it feels like it's part of my brand and part of what I want to be a part of I say yes to. Yeah. There's uh not much that I will say no to, but if it's if it's something that's it it just doesn't resonate with me, it doesn't look like it's a part of something I want to be a part of, I definitely will say no.
0: Now is that uh something that may not have been the way it was before how would you decide on doing things
1: well before? i mean i just started doing drag in 2018 oh wow so again so i, I let's yeah we'll, we'll go we'll, we'll go back let's yeah, go back and we'll, so we can go back to yeah. the you know where sean and i are in minneapolis yeah, so
0: you guys are in minneapolis and, and then... my
1: position is being opened and i'm being transferred to chicago and we really both wanted to go to Chicago. Okay. So um, I was going to do everything in my power to get the job in Ch- in, in Chicago. Got the job in Chicago, yeah. and we moved to Chicago. But then again here I am traveling again. I'm still responsible for this area, primarily because we're gonna build this up, Yeah, but I still have to take care of my territory, which is taking me everywhere else. And your mental energy is pretty much all focused on that. And the amount of gape opportunities for a man that is just being left at home to take care of uh, of the bills is much wider.
0: Of course, now what, what about you on the road? Would you entertain?
1: I had one incident in Toronto where I met one of the other trainers who was so beautiful to me. Yeah. He was French and he was uh, so different and more yeah. exotic than what I had been used to. And um, I flirted with him. Um, I think that we did end up doing something. I don't think that it was full on sex, Yeah, but I do remember that Sean came and visited me in Toronto and he, um, he caught me. I had to beg him to not do anything about it, even though I knew about all of his other things. But I think me doing that just propelled him to want to do it even more. Sure, And I think that that's part of what started to tear us apart. Mm -hmm. Me not being trustful of him, also me not being trustworthy. And we broke up. Uh And when we broke up, now I'm in Chicago, I'm living there by myself, and um, I decided to quit my position. Really? Uh I decided to quit and leave Mac um, because... By now, Estee Lauder's taken over the company. Okay. And it's starting to transfer and change into something that I'm not used to. Uh Um, I'm one of those people who doesn't like change. I don't accept change well, (laughs) especially when it deals with my money and my creativity. I'm not going to take it. So I became really rebellious. Yeah. And out in the open in the company, like at Train the Trainer, I was out in the open rebellious about this company takeover. Yeah. And um, it just wasn't seen right. It just, you know, was one of those things where the company contacted me and we decided that it would be best if we would just, you know, Separate Part ways. ways. Yeah. 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 I got a severance package and I went on about my way. Now, what do I do? I'm in Chicago. I don't have a job. I could start working at one of the department stores, but I was a trainer. Right. You were at a very high level of, of all of this. And yeah. then what's the next step? The next step was for me to start doing drag again. Okay. So yeah. I started doing drag in Chicago. I was now single and alone. And I started doing what was known as club kid drag. Okay. So I was doing like not the, uh, you know, the female impersonation portion of it. I was also doing the club kid nightlife, you know, welcome to, you know, this club door host kind of deal. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's where I got introduced to cocaine. Yeah. And it's where I got introduced to meth.
0: Which brings us to the end of part one of this chat. Part two will be out next week, along with our new chat taped a couple weeks ago.